I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Fathers, we come to your word now to study. We pray that you would speak and feed us with the food of your holy word. That you would shape us and fashion us in your son's likeness. And that God, in understanding your law today and being driven toward your grace today, that we might fulfill your purposes for us. Purposes for your glory. For your son's honor. So speak to us and honor yourself today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year I'm invited by some local clergy to attend and also to participate in uh, uh, an interfaith Thanksgiving service followed by Pie with God. Um, And every year I decline the offer. And the reason is precisely because it's an interfaith service. Now, By interfaith, what is meant is not uh, a gathering together of Bible-believing Baptists and Presbyterians and so on. What they mean by interfaith is a gathering together of Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and so on for the purpose of expressing our community-wide thanks to the God who has been taking care of us all. The problem with that, I would think, is really obvious because those different groups all at least claim to believe in very different gods. And yet somehow we are to come together as a community to thank God singular for His goodness to us. It would become painfully clear that we believe in different gods if a Christian were to go to one of these events and say, for instance, to the Muslim cleric, does Allah have a son? Oh, we don't really believe in the same God, do we? What's happening at that point is that the gig would be up and the interfaith service would be over. The reason the gig is never up and the service happens year after year is because the Christians who participate know going in that they will have to set aside what the Bible says about the exclusivity and uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised at such gatherings insofar as in every age and in every place, people of all stripes and nationalities have gathered together for themselves an accumulation of gods. You look at any culture, uh, there's somewhere in that culture's past paganism, a gathering together of many gods. So we shouldn't be surprised that our culture is heading back that direction. But what's so shocking about this interfaith Thanksgiving service every year is that the organizers of it, for the most part, are men and women who would claim to be Christians. Men and women who claim to be followers of the God-man, Jesus. Men and women who, at least on one level or another, would claim to believe the Bible. Which says, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And yet, these same people plan an event that is a clear violation of the commandment we just read. And they invite the whole community to join them in breaking that commandment. I share this story with you not to chide our neighbors or to encourage you to do that, but to point out to you that this first commandment is incredibly relevant to our day. It may seem just on the surface of things that, of course, we have this right in America. We're not dancing around 
statues in India somewhere. This is America. We're not breaking this command of all commands. But I want you to notice that Christians across our country are more and more being encouraged to accommodate false religions and false gods and to pretend like it's all the same. And you and I are going to be forced to do that as well. or They're going to try to force us to do that and we need to be on our toes. And even if we're not tempted to put Jesus on the shelf with a bunch of other little deities, we also will see this morning that we all are tempted in one way or another to violate the first commandment. Because not every false god comes with his or her own world religion. Some of them are much more subtle than that. So the first commandment is of utmost importance to us. God put it at the top of the list for a reason. Because if this commandment goes by the wayside, all the other commandments will follow in its train. And we've seen that painfully in our culture over the last 50 or 75 years. Some of you who have lived that long can say that. We've lost the other nine commandments, but the reason is because we lost the first commandment. On the other hand, Arthur Pink wrote this, If this first commandment received respect it demands, obedience to the other nine would follow as a matter of course. It's an incredibly relevant verse, verse 3 of Exodus 20. I hope you're interested. If you are, we're going to begin to look more closely at this first commandment. I want you to begin by looking carefully at the actual wording of the commandment in verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Now at first the word before might be a little bit tricky because in modern English we use the word before to designate priority. In other words, eat your vegetables before you get any ice cream. We use it to designate priority. And if we read that definition of the word before back into Exodus 20 verse 3, we could be a bit confused. Because we might read it and read between the lines and think that God is saying something like this. I realize you're going to have other loves and I realize you're probably going to have other gods. Just make sure that you don't put any of them before me. Just make sure that I'm at the top of your list. And that's what it looks like it means because of the way we use the word before generally. But I want to remind you that the word before also has another meaning. Before doesn't always designate priority. Sometimes it designates location. As in, I'm going to set this plate of vegetables before you and you're going to eat it. Or, Psalm 23, you spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Sometimes the word before designates a location in front of. And that's what it means here. You shall have no other gods before me, in front of me. In other words, I think what God is saying to them is something like this. Don't even think about bringing any of those false gods into my presence. I don't want to see any other gods. I don't want to hear about any other gods. I don't even want to detect a hint that there are any other gods in your life. Don't have any other gods before me. Maybe the modern word that would better convey what this verse is really saying is the word besides. You shall have no other gods besides me or other than me. Now most of the English translations default to the word before because that's the way this verse is rendered famously in the King James. That's the way we all have it memorized. And so they've kept it that way. But what it's really saying is you shall have no other gods in front of me, besides me, other than me. Okay, so I hope that's clear. We're to have no other gods besides the one true God. That's the bottom and top of the command. That's what the command means. But now the question is, how does that apply to us? How might we go about breaking this command? How might we be tempted to break it? 
And I thought of three ways this week. How might we be tempted to break the first command? Number one, through foreign idols. Foreign idols. Throughout the Old Testament, you find God consistently warning His people not to worship foreign idols. Not to worship the gods of the nations around them. Because He knew, first of all, that when they saw the beautiful temples that had been built, when they saw the elaborate ceremonies and furnishings, when they saw the handcrafted images that these people had made for themselves, God's people might be tempted to say, that's really nice. They're doing really well. We want to go for that. It's the same thing that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel plays on today. They make everything look really good so that people go, oh, they must have something right. Well, God knew that about His people and about the false idols. And so He said, don't have any other gods. And He's constantly warning them against this. And He also knew probably more than that that they might be tempted to add a few extra gods to their shelves for political reasons. Because it would be much easier in their minds to make peace with the nations around them if they just shared with those nations a few religious rites and ceremonies. Perhaps married in with them and became one people with them. God knew they would be tempted to do that and knew that they would be carried away towards idols. And so He warned His people again and again and He warns us as well. Be careful that you don't fall for the trap of false religions. Let me just give you one of God's many warnings. It's in Exodus 23.13. Listen to what He told the Israelites. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. And do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. That's strong, isn't it? The Israelites weren't even to give Baal or Chemosh or Ra or any of these other gods the dignity of even pronouncing their names. Why? Why is it that serious? Because it's a reminder to them that they're to have absolutely nothing to do with false religion and foreign idols. They weren't even to whisper these gods' names, much less go watch their ceremonies or participate in their feasts. Now my guess is that most of you aren't normally tempted to fall into the trap of false religion. Some of you may be. Most of you are not tempted to worship Allah or the Buddhas or something like that. Be glad of that, but be careful. Because as God said to the Israelites in Exodus 23, you must be on your guard. Because the devil loves to whisper in our ear things like, it would be much easier for you to make peace with your neighbors if you just shared with them in a few of their religious ceremonies and rites. If you just went to the interfaith service, perhaps everything would work out and you could become friends and you could influence them. It doesn't usually work that way, does it? When we tie ourselves to idols and try to influence the idolaters, it usually comes back to bite us. And God told the Israelites the same thing. We must be on our guard against foreign idols. We also might be tempted to break the first command with American idols. I'm not, I'm not referring to people that are on television necessarily, although that might become an idol for you, but, but idols that are more common to us in this country. I hope you realize that foreign gods like Allah or Baal and so on aren't the only idols competing for God's throne. I hope you understand that. John Calvin reminds us that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Men and women, in other words, can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of money. You can make an idol out of power, out of sex, out of food, out of comfort, out of your job, out of alcohol, out of anything. 
So we may not paint our faces and dance around these particular things that we worship, but worship just isn't about rites and ceremonies, is it? Worship at its heart is about what we value the most, what we love the most, what we organize our schedules around, what overrules our decision-making, what, squeeze, what comes out of us when we are squeezed. That's what worship is. That's what we worship. You ask yourself, if somebody really gets me to talk about what's important to me, what do I talk about? That's what you worship. That's what worship is. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves here, is he stretching the first commandment just a little bit? I mean, isn't the first commandment really about Baal and, and these other idols that the Israelites were tempted towards? Maybe he's just pulling this out of the context a bit to suit his own pastoral agenda. Maybe he's taking artistic license so that he can step on our toes a bit. I mean, really. How can he make the leap from Baal to my bedroom suit? How can he make the leap from Molech to money? Well, I can make that jump because the Bible makes that jump. The Bible is far from assuming that False gods like Baal and, and Asherah and Molech in the Bible are the only ones that we may worship. The Bible is far from assuming that false gods are simply carved little statues that people worship in Asia somewhere. It doesn't assume that at all. For didn't we just read a few weeks ago in Habakkuk chapter 1, God saying about the Chaldeans, their strength is their God. They worship their own strength. And they worshiped a lot of other things as well. But he said their strength is their God. And doesn't Paul speak of people whose God is their appetite? Philippians 3.19 I'm not stretching this commandment out of its context at all. And you see, the real danger for us is not that we would worship the Buddhas. Mainly, the real danger for most of us is that we'd worship ourselves. That we'd put ourselves at the center of our decision making. That we would put ourselves at the center of what we love most and cherish the most. And if our strength is our God like the Chaldeans, what will happen is we will begin to worship a pantheon of other little gods that accentuate our strength. Gods like money and power and work and success and so on. And if our God is our appetite, then we'll begin to serve that chief idol with a whole host of smaller idols that feed its belly. Things like food and clothing, sex, sports, Automobiles, computer games, all sorts of things that feed our appetites become little gods serving the main God, which is me. So both Habakkuk and Paul warn us that our biggest problem with the first commandment is that we're tempted to worship ourselves. So we need to be warned. Anything that you place at the center of your, your priorities, anything that trumps the Word of God in your decision-making, Anything that you cannot live without, anything that occupies the places that only God Himself belongs has become for you a little deity. Less obvious, but no less sinful than those pathetic statues, half man and half monkey, that Mark and I saw in every little village in India. It's the same thing. And worse than that, all of these secondary gods show you that the chief God is none other than me. So let me ask you, are you carving idols for yourself? Ask yourself honestly. I mean, maybe you can picture them sitting on your desk or sitting in your house somewhere. 
What is it that you're worshiping? Are you worshiping the works of your own hands or the accomplishments of your own intellect? If so, then you've broken the first commandment. So we may break the first commandment with foreign idols. More likely, we may break them with our own little American idols, mainly ourselves. Thirdly, we may break the first commandment with second-hand idols. Second-hand idols. Now, the primary way we break the commandment is, as we've been saying, through direct worship of ourselves or of some other object or person. But before we leave this subject, I want you to see that there is another way. Second-hand idols. Paul holds out the possibility in relation to the first commandment that we may break the commandment by being guilty by association. Guilty by association. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Do not be bound together with an unbeliever. For what partnership have unrighteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or here it is. Or what agreement has the temple of God, your body, with idols? See what Paul's saying? When you bind yourself to an unbeliever, you may, in so doing, attach yourself to their idols. The primary application that we always make from these verses, and it's the right primary application, is that of marriage. Because whenever... A believer marries an unbeliever. He is, Paul says, attaching himself to their idols and making himself susceptible to begin worshiping the idols of his wife or herself susceptible to begin worshiping the idols of her husband. And if anyone is capable of leading us astray to worship idols, it's our spouse. Just ask Adam. Just ask Solomon, who was led astray by many foreign wives. So, I want to say something just briefly to young people, particularly. Young people who are here every week, those of you who will take the first and last time probably, you make sure, young people, that you never, ever marry an unbeliever. And you make sure that you don't even allow yourself to get romantically involved with an unbeliever. You will save yourself much heartache, much temptation, and probably in the end, much sin if you avoid these secondhand idols. And I want to say to the rest of you, secondhand attachment to idols can happen in other ways as well. We may yoke ourselves to unbelievers in other ways besides marriages. That's why I don't participate in the interfaith services, because if I sat myself on the platform and linked arms with these priests of various false gods, I would be, for some in the audience, condoning their behavior, condoning their idolatry. That's why Paul warned the Corinthian church about participating in pagan feasts. Because he knew that unwittingly they would lend credence to the actions of these idolaters and lead other people astray. Now be careful. I'm not saying that we need to withdraw ourselves from the world and never have any intermingling with the world. Because we should constantly be intermingling with the world for the purposes of evangelism. What I am saying is, with the first commandment in view, we need to be careful not to attach ourselves too closely to the world, not to bind ourselves to unbelievers in ways that would either condone their idolatry on the one hand or tempt us to join in it on the other. So what are you guilty of? Are you guilty of worshiping foreign idols? Maybe a few of you. Are you guilty of worshiping American idols? All of us, I think. Are you guilty of secondhand idols? 
Some of us perhaps are. Some of us are about to head down that road. And God has given us a way of this morning. Three ways that we may break the commandment. Now let me shift gears by pointing out to you that so far, all that we've talked about is what we should not do in relation to this command. We shouldn't worship foreign idols. We shouldn't worship American idols. We shouldn't worship secondhand idols. We only said what we should not do. In fact, the commandment itself, verse 3, only speaks about what we should not do. And one commentator has pointed out that nearly all the commandments are couched in the negative, he says, because they presuppose the existence of sin and evil desires in the human heart. So just as an aside, if you've ever wondered, why do most of these commandments begin with you shall not instead of you shall? Why are they all in the negative? Well, the reason is because men and women are not morally neutral. It's not as though we just need a little pep talk to to push us on along our way to do the right thing. No, men and women are sold into bondage to sin, Paul says. And we are so bent towards sin that we need more you shall nots than we need you shalls, at least on the front end. So that's why all the commandments are in the negative, if you ever wonder. But I want you to know that we shouldn't merely think of the commandments as prohibitions. They are that, but we shouldn't merely think of them as that. Because behind every you shall not in Exodus 20 is an implicit you shall. Behind every you shall not, there's an implicit you shall. In other words, God doesn't want us to simply avoid evil. He wants us to do good. So if we obey the commandment, for instance, not to worship any false gods, and stop there, have we done enough? Is that all that the first commandment intends? Is that we simply not worship false idols? No, of course not. It's not enough simply to drain the old dirty motor oil out of your car and then not put anything else in there to replace it, is it? It doesn't get you very far. It's the same thing with this commandment. It's not sufficient simply to put away your false gods. You must also come to worship the true God. So there's this underlying um, positive commandment there. The written commandment is don't worship false gods. The underlying obvious assumption, though, then, is that we will worship the one true God. And this positive side of the command is explained by Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Five, as God speaks through him and tells the people, and Jesus quotes it in Mark 12:30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the flip side of the coin. It's not just putting away false gods, it's worshiping the true God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. What does that mean? Well, think out that verse just briefly, phrase by phrase. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That means all your affections and emotions should be bent towards God. You should love the Lord with all of your soul. That means your complete, unfaltering trust should be in the Lord. You should love the Lord your God with all your mind. It means that every thought must be brought under captivity to Christ. Your mind's not allowed to wander if you love God. And it also means that you should use this gray matter up here to study and thoroughly understand the Scriptures. Some of us don't love the Lord with all of our minds because we don't use our minds to think hard about the Bible. You should love the Lord your God with all your strengths by serving Him and not yourself with every ounce of your time and every ounce of your talent and every ounce of your energy and every ounce of your employment and so on. It's all for God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. And until you've done these things, you have obeyed neither the explicit teaching of the Lord Jesus or the implicit expectations of the first commandment. So ask yourself, how am I doing? Do I really love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? How am I really doing 
with the first commandment. And we said last week that the law of God, the Ten Commandments in particular, has various different purposes. The obvious and and surface purpose of it is that it teaches us the way God wants us to live as His free people. But when we read God's commandments, we also said last week that we learned something about the character of the God who gave them. So they teach us about us, but they teach us also about God. So what does the first commandment teach us about God? We were to read this and say, what can we learn about God from Exodus 20, verse 3? What would the answer be? I think the main answer would be this verse, this commandment, speaks primarily about God's exclusivity. His exclusivity. Isaiah 44, 6 explains it very clearly when God says, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. No wonder then that He tells us not to have any other gods. There aren't any other gods. There's no God besides me. Everything else is a fake. It's a phony. It's the work of the devil. So we teach our children in the little catechism that we use. This question, we ask Julia and Andrew, how many gods are there? Answer, there is only one true God. Every child should know that from childhood. God says it again in Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. God is exclusive. And therefore the commandment teaches us that God expects to be worshipped exclusively. The same way that a husband expects to be loved by his wife exclusively. A husband doesn't tolerate his wife having a different man over every night of the week. He doesn't tolerate his wife having a fallback plan, a fallback lover in case things don't work out with him. No. He expects her to love him exclusively till death do us part. And if a husband expects that and a wife expects that, how much more should God expect his bride to love him and not be in bed with other gods? Of course that's what he expects. Therefore, to worship other gods made with our own hands, made with our own imaginations, made with our own intellect or earning capacity is adultery. James says friendship with the world is hostility towards God and then he calls the people adulteresses. Because they love the world. They turn the things of the world into idols. It's adultery. It's wickedness. And not only is it wickedness, it's foolishness. If there's only one God and we worship something else, we're fools, aren't we? Listen to this comical description that Isaiah gives of a man carving an idol for himself out of a block of wood. This is chapter 44, 16 and 17. Half of it, meaning the block of wood, he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats his meat as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So he has this block of wood and half of it he puts in the fire and cooks a pot of beans over it. And the other half he carves into a little statue and bows down to it. Isn't that ridiculous? It's ridiculous. It's pathetic. It's sinful. But it's no less ridiculous and no less pathetic and no less sinful when the block of wood is replaced with a stock portfolio or a business venture or a golf swing or a wardrobe or a football team or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or a husband. The heart is a pure factory of idols. Therefore, all of us, in one fashion or another, are guilty of bowing down before things that we've created with our own hands or our own 
minds. We've done what Paul said. We worship the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Now while we're thinking about God's exclusivity, let's remember that both the New and the Old Testament present God as a trinity. Trinity. Three persons, one God. Therefore, the exclusivity of the first commandment and the first commandment itself applies to God the Son just as much as it applies to God the Father and God the Spirit. And the Apostle Peter points this out in Acts 4.12. Because speaking of Jesus, he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is exclusive, just like God the Father, Peter tells us. Application? If you try to work your way back to God through your own willpower and self-effort, if you try to sign your own name on God's receipt of payment for sins in the place where only the name should be, the name of Jesus should be written, you're an idolater. Because you're doing the same thing as the Old Testament idolaters were. You're putting the works of your own hands in the place that only God the Son should occupy. Only God, through His Son Jesus Christ, saves sinners. Therefore, when a sinner tries to save himself with his own hands, When he tries to do what only God can do, he's replacing God with an idol, namely the idol of his own good works. And in doing so, again, he breaks the first commandment. So it's madness to try to pay God back for your own sins. Because far from actually paying God back for your own sins, what you're doing is breaking the first commandment and building up more guilt for yourself than you had before. It's foolishness to try to pay back your own sin debt. And it's a breach of the first commandment. Now, let me close by saying this. If you're here this morning and you're apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a good possibility that right now you're a little bit agitated. And there's a good possibility that some of you who are believers are a little bit unsettled as well. And I want to see if I can anticipate what you might be thinking in your mind. Because this is what I might be thinking. All right, preacher. You're telling me that I'm breaking the first commandment not just because I bow before some Hindu statue, but that I also might be breaking it by loving my job or my team or my boyfriend or my car or my reputation more than I ought to. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And you're also telling me I might be breaking it simply by having a guilty association with other idolaters. Exactly. And you're also going to say to me that even if I'm not doing all of those bad things, that I'm still breaking the commandment if I'm not overflowing with love for God in everything that I do. Yes. And that all of this makes me a spiritual adulteress. Yes, me too. And that if I try to pull myself up by my, myself up by my bootstraps, if I try to fix the problem, if I try to do what's right, I'm just making myself more guilty. Yes. What are you leaving me with? How in the world am I supposed to obey this commandment? If you thought even any of those questions this morning, then I've succeeded. If that's the way you feel, then God has you where He wants you because now you're ready to hear Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. I want you to turn there. Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. In Romans 8, Paul says this about our relationship to God's law, to His commandments. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 
sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? Let me paraphrase it for you. The law is supposed to make you feel guilty. So if you don't want to feel guilty, just the next ten weeks, don't come back. Because the law is supposed to make you feel guilty. Because your own sinfulness, the law cannot save you. It cannot save you. It can show you the ways of God, but it cannot give you the strength to walk in those ways. So he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was because you're a sinner, God did. God sent His only Son to walk on this sinful earth and to die in place of sinners for our consistent violations of the first and every other commandment. And in dying for sinners, Christ not only purchased our forgiveness, but He says He also purchased for us the right to have the Holy Spirit's help. So that as a believer in Jesus, He might give you the strength to begin to fulfill the law in ways that you never thought possible. Read Romans 8, 2-4 with me again. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me simplify that even a little bit more. You will never, ever in this life obey God's law. You won't. You'll break it every day. Your flesh is too sinful. The law, therefore, cannot save you. But God sent His Son to die in your place so that you might be forgiven. And He sent His Son to offer you strength so that you might begin to fulfill the law in the power of the Spirit. That's good news. So isn't it time that we became like the Thessalonians whom we studied on Wednesday night? Isn't it time, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, that we turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come? Isn't it time to do that? What idols do you need to turn from? And will you bring them to Jesus and admit your sin and receive His grace both to forgive and to enable you to obey?